Welcome back to The Hot Dish, comfort food for rural Americans. Ashton Clemens is going to join us today. She's a state representative from North Carolina trying to deal with uh, the issues that everyone has, which is childcare. We have it big in North Dakota. We have people not entering the workforce because they don't have childcare. And we also have a bunch of people that aren't having kids because of it. The first thing that young people, before they even get pregnant, think about, and no matter where you are in this country, can I find someone to take care of the kids? To some degree, we have a sister, Thomasine, who, whose son and daughter-in-law recently had a child in D.C., and literally the grandparents took turns in the first year of that kid's life basically providing daycare. Because, number one, if they could find it, it was completely unaffordable, even for two professional salaries. And so this whole idea, you know, and I find it just so interesting when people say, well, you know, this younger generation, they're so lazy. They don't want to have kids. They don't want to do any of this. And I'm like, really? Be them. Be them. You know, number one, especially if they've moved away from grandparents, how much daycare does your wife provide, Joel? Yeah. I mean, that that's a whole part of it. My wife. What do you mean my wife? Me and my wife. My wife and I. I mean, I'm there. Really? I take the kids places, you know. Really? I, really? Yeah, okay. She does more. <laughs> but, but the other part to all that, Hyde, is... The earlier incomes, like Sue and I, we had kids and we were 22 and 23, right? That's when we had our two. Uh, when They can't afford to have them early either. They have to wait until they're making enough salary, and then they got to wait a year before they... Well, it, 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 think about this. If they're paying $1,000 a month in student loan debt, how do you find the $1,200 for daycare? And, and, you know, the growth of our economy is dependent on productivity of our individuals. And I'm not saying that it's not... In, incredibly important for people to stay home with their kids. But when you have two people in the workforce, the economy's humming a little bit better than when you only have one. We're joined now by Ashton Clemens. Now, she's a state representative and a board member of one country. She's uh, finding a way to get North Carolina to invest in childcare, recognizing what it can do for the economy and for people's lives. Representative Clemens, good to have you on the hot dish. Yes, glad to be with you guys. Now, this is pretty universal. I live in North Dakota, but uh, my radio show goes into Montana, Minnesota, and South Dakota. And the one thing that's absolutely clear is that every one of those states, and I would guess every state, has a child care problem. And each one of those states is dealing with it differently. Tell us about what you did in North Carolina. Yes, you are exactly right. Every state, every city, whether it's urban, rural, we are all struggling to have child care, which is hard for families across our country, but it's also impacting the economy of our country by preventing people from getting to work. So in North Carolina, I founded a bipartisan, bicameral early childhood caucus that has been working to advocate for our child care system, our child care workforce, and to really make progress on how we ensure every family has access to affordable, safe child care in our state. So when it comes to child care, it just kills us in terms of the potential of our workforce. We don't have workers. And I don't know if that's the case in North Carolina, but we don't have workers. And is this a response to some of that? Yes. Absolutely. You know, when I started this in 2019, I can't say that the business community of North Carolina was right there with us. But when we did our 
legislative rollout this year of our priorities. The North Carolina Chamber, which is traditionally pretty conservative here, was part of our press conference and has been a humongous advocate with our families and our businesses to support the child care system because they know people cannot get back to work if they're worried about child care. See, and one of the things that I fear is that because there's such a shortage, the quality of care has the potential of going away. And I don't know if that's been an issue in North Carolina, but it's shown its head up here. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think That's why when we think about reforms, we have to balance what makes sense and what is responsible for our youngest North Carolinians as their brains are growing and they need to be safe, but also what makes it a manageable opportunity for people who want to run child care centers. And there's a fine line between that. It is the most important time for our future American citizens. Their brain grows 85% of it by the time they're three. So we have to invest in safe, early and engaging childcare for our families and not risk that even though we are in a crisis period. So Representative Clemens, I want to play devil's advocate or at least hit you with some of the questions I get hit with, which is why in the world should I fund your childcare when nobody funded mine? What was your answer to that? Well, I think we can either invest now in children or we will be paying for what we don't invest in later. So while you know, we can invest our dollars. The best return on investment is to invest in them early, or we can invest in greater juvenile justice costs later. We can invest in having to train workers later when they could have been on a more successful path to begin with, which we know successful early childhood does. It is also directly related to the amount that our economies are going to continue to grow is whether they have child care. So I think it's for the economy of our country now, we must invest in it, uh, but also for the economy 20 years from now when we need this, a strong workforce, we need to invest in it. Here in North Dakota, it's about 1500 bucks a month. I mean, that's what it costs per child. And that that is after you wait a year to be able to even have it. Uh, there's a waiting list forever. But many people who call into my show say, look, I can't figure out why it isn't working economically for them for the price to be less. What did you find out when you studied the issue? Yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge is that unless we're going to be creative about public dollars and businesses being involved in the child care costs, it's really a broken model because families are unable to afford child care as it is. And the average pay here in North Carolina for a child care worker is $10.72 an hour. So the system is broken when we have families who can't afford it. And the workforce that's so critical is still not able to have a living wage for their family. There are some creative ideas there. The Biden administration has encouraged in lots of different ways investment in child care. So it's really an exciting time because there's some innovation happening. But you are exactly right that the current model is prohibitive for families and is leaving our workforce behind. Do you think it stops people from having kids? As someone who paid much more than our mortgage and childcare, I can tell you, I think that for women, they are thinking about whether it makes sense to be in the workforce, even if they want to be, um, or whether they need to have less children than they may have wanted to. I definitely think the cost, which in most places is actually more than uh, college tuition, people are paying in childcare. So I do think it's impacting decisions. I'm going to give you an example of my family. I'm one of seven kids. I had two. 
one of the people that you work with on a daily basis, my sister Heidi, she had two. I mean, the math doesn't work out for a future workforce. And then you got to find one. So, you know, the, the money that you put in, is there anything out there yet that shows you're succeeding? To be seen, because we're just making some significant progress right now. So I hope that three to five years from now, we're able to show that. Yeah. And it's going to take that long. Yes, it will. When you speak to parents about it, do they get excited about this? Absolutely. Families have been our biggest, strongest advocates along the work that we've been doing. We've had thousands of families come to the legislature to advocate because they know it's right for their family and other families. Guys, I'm going to have to get off in a minute because I'm picking the boys up and it's their first day. So I want to be able to give them all the screaming and love that they deserve on the first day of school. You bet. I, I will let you go. Uh, the only thing I got one more question is the, the business community. You brought them along kicking Greg. And why aren't they on this? Why aren't they kicking in to be leaders rather than followers? You know, I think that they are starting to see. We see that nationally and we certainly see that in North Carolina that they are stepping up because particularly post-COVID, it has had a dramatic influence on whether people are going back to work. So I'm optimistic that with business leadership and innovation, we can make some real progress. Representative Clemens, thanks for coming on The Hot Dish and hope I get a chance to meet you face-to-face. Yes, thank you for having me and for talking about such an important issue. The return to school is bittersweet. Summer always goes too fast, but on the other hand, getting back to school does solve many families' childcare issues. But what are our kids eating when they go to school and how can we improve the quality of food on their plates? For many of these students, this may be the only nutritious meal they receive, and that makes it even more important. Karen Ahrens is here with me. She's a registered dietitian and, true confessions, a great friend of mine. Almost everything I know about school nutrition, I learned from Karen. She recently took a new job, which is being the Director of Legislative and Government Affairs at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. Big job, and with a big issue when we see growing rates of obesity, more child poverty, more child hunger. You know, Karen, I couldn't have put a better person in charge of solving these problems. So have you gotten the work done yet? That's my first question. Well, thank you so much, Heidi. I've uh, so much enjoyed working with you over the years because you get it. You get the importance of school meals programs, childcare meal programs, nutrition education. So it's been really great to work with you and know the challenges are still there. Even after COVID, some remain, but Maybe we'll chat about that a little bit more. You know, what's interesting is is Michelle Obama got so much grief for her nutrition programs and, you know, all the people saying, oh, you know, she just wants to be the nanny in the, the lunchroom. But an amazing thing happened when, during the Obama years, we actually saw the rate of childhood obesity go down. When we trained a palate of a child to appreciate different kinds of fruits and vegetables, to think about nutrition guess what happens? We have a healthier America and we're building uh, stronger and kids that are more ready to learn. So why is it so hard to convince people to basically get away from that processed food, get to get to a school nutrition program that actually provides nutrition and not just calories? 
Good question. The interesting thing is that school meals have been shown to be the healthiest places that kids eat in the United States. And that was has been since the implementation of the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act, which is now over 10 years ago. So these things have been in place. A child starting in kindergarten would now be in middle school with these changes in place. So like you said, with this time, we're seeing more healthful school meals and there are proposed changes in place to make them even more healthy. And so we look forward to uh, helping schools implement those uh, proposed changes. Give me a for instance, like if I went to school today, I can't compare it with my raising because back when I went to school, my mother was a school cook and uh, she definitely knew how to put a nutritious meal on the table, delicious and nutritious without any extra calories and kids were more active. But let's say, you know, from 10 years ago, how has the school hot lunch program changed? What would have been a meal 10 years ago and what are they doing now that basically achieves a more nutritious, healthier meal? What you'll see on trays these days are more fruits and vegetables, um, thanks to farm to school programs, maybe even more locally grown fruits and vegetables. And we all know that when you pick something from your garden right nearby or from a local farmer's garden, it's going to taste better. So you'll see more fruits and vegetables, more whole grain breads on the plate. Um, you won't see it, but you'll taste less salt. But school cooks uh, have gotten good at knowing how to add seasonings and flavors that are not salt. And you will see more variety, like uh, reflecting the children that go to school from many different cultures. When their parents and students provide the input, school nutrition professionals can take and provide some really tasty meals that reflect different backgrounds with there might be rice instead of bread. There might be new seasonings and, and more interesting flavors than what we might have experienced earlier days when we were attending school. How important is the school lunch program to tackling long-term challenges of obesity? It's super important. It's so important that we're even using a new term now called nutrition security. And that's making sure that people are not only getting enough calories to eat, but getting enough of the right nutrients to lead us to better health and away from poor health. So nutrition security is on the tongues of many people who are working in nutrition programs. And it's so important because when we don't have that access, as we grow older, kids can grow up to have higher chances of getting things like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, diet-related forms of cancer. And these, especially in disproportionate amounts, impact people in communities of color. Well, for all of those people who say, well, you guys just want to be the mean lunch ladies that make us eat our vegetables and our fruit, let's talk about the money and what this epidemic is costing us, whether it is treatments for type 2 diabetes, whether it is increased costs of, of heart disease, and even some cancers have been linked to excess weight and excess you know, obesity. So what, what exactly does this uh, problem in America cost America, Karen? 
the cost to society add up. So it's not only cost to government government programs like Medicaid and Medicare, um, but it's also cost to private businesses when people are not their most healthy, they can't be the most productive at work. When children are not at their best health, they can't learn to their fullest extent, and that can impede them from succeeding uh, as individuals in society as they grow up. So all these things that we're doing are for our children now and into the future and our whole society into the future. Yeah, if I could just spend a little bit of time addressing these challenges in rural America, but um, we're we're seeing a lot of discussion about the nutrition program in the Farm Bill, a lot of discussion about what we're going to do to make sure that children have access to not just a noon lunch, but breakfast and theoretically meals on the weekends. And we know that programs that provide summer meals may be the only meal that a child receives uh, when school is out of session. And so this federal funding is so critical. USDA invests nearly $30 million to boost um, school nutrition in about 264 small and rural communities throughout the Partnership for Action for Healthy Kids. That's just one of the programs. But your organization, which is really focused on the importance of delivering healthy food to raise healthy children and healthy adults, what are your top legislative priorities? Well, my portfolio includes all the federal nutrition programs from SNAP to WIC to school meals um, and childcare meals. When it comes to the challenges that people living and working in rural areas face, we hear every month of the closure of grocery stores, hospitals, newspapers. Services are farther apart and more expensive. Rural communities can find themselves at the end of a food distribution chain, and they're probably pretty far away from distribution warehouses with uh, in larger cities. So those are the kind of things that make it more challenging. Um, that grant that you mentioned from USDA, because this technical assistance will reach out to rural communities to help them get some more hints and direction in um, making the best with what they have in the rural areas. Yeah, I mean, it's it's complex. And the most important thing that you do every day is deciding what you're going to put into your body that's going to fuel your life. And, you know, when you, when you feel good, you um, have a resiliency that will be reflected in how you conduct your day-to-day activities. Nutrition is such a part of this, and we just ignore it. And so I, Karen, thank you so much for coming on and reminding us once again how important it is, the connection between nutrition and healthcare costs, the connection between nutrition and mental health. It's just so critical. I know your advocacy is now on the national scale, but keep up your good work and keep telling the stories and keep connecting the dots of the importance of nutrition whether it is in rural areas or, or urban areas. Thank you so much, Heidi. It's been so good to connect with you and speak with you again to the importance of nutrition to our kids, all of our kids, and all of us. As you know, I love a good story about the ways people are revitalizing their rural communities. 
the residents of Caseville, Michigan, figured out a way to lure tens of thousands of visitors, along with their wallets, to their otherwise sleepy town on the thumb. How did they do it? Cheeseburgers and a tropical vibe that Jimmy Buffett would love. Our producer, Caroline Cooper, went to the Cheeseburger in Caseville Festival, an annual and very lucrative moneymaker. I'm Jeremy Sprague. We are up in downtown Caseville at Walt's Restaurant. We're cooking the best cheeseburger in Caseville for the 2023 Cheeseburger in Caseville Festival. No pressure. No pressure. Not here. Okay, so what is the ingredients for the best cheeseburger? This year's best cheeseburger, we have our third pound fresh, never frozen Angus beef burger topped with mango habanero bacon jam, onion straws, drizzle of barbecue sauce, smoked Gouda cheese on a Hawaiian bun. How long has your family run this restaurant? Oh boy, over 50 years. Really? Over 60 years. Wow. Yes. Yeah, and I think this is our sixth year doing the Cheeseburger Festival. One, two out of four so far. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. So I was reading that every year Jimmy Buffett gets invited. <laughs> I do believe, yes, every year. Do you think he's going to show up this year? I've lived here my whole life. I do not think he will show up this year. They always say he's coming. They always say Kid Rock's coming. Never seen either. <laughs> is that Jimmy? Yeah. Oh, boy. What would happen if Jimmy Buffett showed up at Walt's? He'd have the best cheeseburger of his life right here. Key North, baby. Number one is, it's a special grind burger on a brioche bun with Monster American cheese. Of all the ways you could spend your long weekend, why Cheeseburger Festival? I like that it's like a small town vibe. I like that it's just like laid back, really cool. Everyone's super nice. I love the Jimmy Buffett theme. You can, you can walk into the tent, and you'll meet people from all over Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, you name it, Canada even. It's a lot of fun. If you like Trap Rock, Jimmy Buffett, all that fun stuff, this is the place to be. What did you think about the Gouda cheese at Walt's? It's really good. It's really good. We liked it. We really liked it. Horns. Horns part Horns. Of the Horns is our favorite so far. Yeah. 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 And what's in the Horns burger? It's uh, what? Crushed, flaming hot Cheetos, crushed Cool Ranch Doritos, seasoned cream cheese with jalapenos and pepper jack cheese. Yeah. And it was two one-third pound burgers too. So it was it was it a was nice size burger. Do the judges have a culinary background? No. They have a love of cheeseburger background. Who are the three judges? Uh, I'm the uh, regional president for Independent Bank. And this is Johnny Core. He's from Pigeon. And then Neil. Island Country. Neil Jefferson. Jefferson. Nice. What are your early thoughts on this bite? Are you allowed to say? It tastes it's, like a burger. It's tasty. Yes, it's good. It's a good okay, way to kick off cheeseburger. Two. It's a half pound black Angus brisket paired with corned beef, sauerkraut, Russian sauce. Fold it in a tortilla, then deep fried until golden brown. What would happen if Jimmy Buffett actually came? I would just be like, hey, about time. <laughs> we want him. We want him so bad. We, we always invite him. We'll invite him here. If he wants to play, he can play on the roof, if anything. We'll put him on the roof. 
My name is Steve Lowers. I'm the president of the Chamber of Commerce, and I'm also the event coordinator. The economic impact is absolutely phenomenal. To give you an idea, if, if, if we can estimate 150 to 200,000 cheeseburgers sold at $10 a piece, you're looking at, what, $2 million just in cheeseburgers. And, you know, the thousands of people that come in there, uh, as many as 40 to 50,000 the day of the parade in a town of 670 people, can you imagine the impact? Great. That's great for all your local businesses. Absolutely. And um, the winner of this is in a lot of trouble because they will not have enough beef to, to serve their customers. It like triples their sales. <laughs> you can ask last year's winner. Well, I went to Walt's. I talked to Jeremy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He told you that, right? He ran out every day. Every day he ran out. How are these judges going to get through all these burgers? Are they, they're slowing down. They are slowing down. Hey, John, are you getting a little full over there? <laughs> we have to get new judges every year, you know, because their cholesterol level gets so high, it takes a year to lower it. And when you won last year, what were you thinking? Here we go again. That's it. I mean, it's nothing you can prepare for. It's nothing you can be ready for. Just kind of strap up your boots and try and have a good time with it. And the winner of the best cheeseburger went to Bill Belcher of Belcher & Associates Concessions. Bill named his so-called tribute burger in memory of his late wife. He puts everything on the burger that she liked, including pepper jack cheese, hickory smoked pulled pork, onion rings, and barbecue sauce. Good luck eating that one. Bill, congratulations. Jimmy Buffett, if you're listening, I think it's safe to say that you have a standing invitation to Caseville in 2024. Thank you for joining us today on The Hot Dish. If you enjoyed our show, please rate it and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And to support the important work that One Country is doing to evaluate the needs of rural America, please visit onecountryproject.com forward slash give. Thank you so much. And you'll hear from us again in two weeks. Mm -hmm.